want to take the Bible and uh, let's open it together this morning to Psalm 32. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've got a copy that you can borrow right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 395 to begin with in our copy of the Bible or Psalm 32 in your copy of the Bible, page 395, Psalm 32. You know, in his most famous sermon, the one Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, Peter said these words. He said, repent, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive forgiveness of your sins. And as we look in the Bible, we find that over and over this magic word is used, the word repentance. In his very next sermon, Acts chapter 3, Peter said, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus himself said that he came into our world to call sinners to repentance. And in Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, Jesus said that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. In fact, the Apostle Paul pretty well summarized God's entire message to the human race with these words, he simply said that we must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That pretty well sums it up. And you know, folks, we should say right here that repentance is not just for people who aren't Christians yet. No, not at all. But that one of the ongoing parts of the Christian life is repentance. That's why in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus said, Those whom I love, I rebuke and correct. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Now, that's to Christians. And so, whatever your and my relationship to God is here today, doesn't matter where you and I stand in our walk with God, repentance is for us. Knowing how to repent in a way that pleases God. Knowing how to repent in a way that activates the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God in our life. This is an important thing to know how to do. That's what we want to talk about today. How do we do this? Because we're going to watch David do it, and we're going to try to pull out of David's experience some practical lessons about how you and I can do it in our modern world. Now, I had a lady, after the second service, come up and thank me and say, thank you for that message. And I said, you know what? If you can thank me for a message about repentance, then something good's happening here. Because this is not what we normally like to hear. Who wants to come And here, that we need to repent, that we need to make a U-turn, that we need to make changes in our life. And yet, this is a part of the message of God to us as His people. And so, I hope that uh, this will be valuable for you. Let's remember where we are. David has been a really nasty guy. David has committed adultery with another man's wife, a gal named Bathsheba. He's gone out and murdered her husband, first-degree murder, Uriah. Taken this woman to be his own wife. And now she's had a child uh, that was his, that was born that night of their adultery. And for almost a year, David covered this up. For almost a year, David just played catch me if you can. And now at the end of a year, God sends Nathan the prophet to go visit David, as we saw last week. Before we look into that, though, I think it's important for us to understand that during that year, while David was covering up his sin, David was not having a wonderful life. Right here in Psalm 32, he writes about what was going on during that year. And look what he said. He said in Psalm 32, verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin with Bathsheba, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, Lord, your hand was heavy upon me. 
My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. David tells us here exactly what was going on on the inside of him during that year. He wasn't relaxing. He wasn't taking life easy. He wasn't sitting on the porch sipping mint juleps. He wasn't having a wonderful time with his brand new beautiful wife. No. David's life was a string of sleepless nights and shallow laughs and empty Bible study and listless prayer and unfulfilling duties. The joy in his walk with God had dried up like an old prune. And to put it simply, David was miserable on the inside. And after letting David simmer in this condition for a year, God sent Nathan the prophet to go see him. Now let's turn back and look at that. 2 Samuel chapter 12, page 222 if you're using our copy of the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and you'll remember as you're turning to page 222, that Nathan came in and told David a story. Told him a story about a rich man who had lots and lots and lots of sheep, and had a visitor come from out of town, but instead of taking one of his own sheep and killing it to feed the visitor, what did he do? He went to this poor man who only had one lamb that he loved and that he treated like a child, and he took this guy's one lamb, and he killed it. And David was furious. David was so mad he didn't know what to do. And he said, the man who did this deserves to die, and I'm going to make him pay it back. And how could he do such a horrible, pathetic thing? Remember that? And then look at verse 7, here in chapter 12. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the guy who did this, David. You're the rich man. You had lots of wives. You could have gone to any one of your wives that night if you needed passion. But instead, you went out and took Uriah's only wife. And not only did you take her, but then you killed him. You're the man. And suddenly, David is faced with a pivotal moment. He's got two choices staring him in the face. Choice number one is he can just keep on going the way he's been going, covering it up, uh, playing, uh, 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 playing uh, you, you know, that like nothing really happened, uh, continuing the sham. I mean, he could have locked Nathan up in prison or even killed Nathan. I mean, he's already killed Uriah, so why not kill Nathan? I mean, and let's just go on and, and, and let's just keep the cover up going. That was choice number one. Or choice number two, David could repent. David could make a U-turn. David could come clean and fess up and come out of the darkness and into the light and allow the great physician to lance the boil and squeeze out the pus and pour some spiritual antiseptic in and let the healing start. David had two choices at that moment. Which did he take? Well, look down at verse 13. Verse 13, And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan. In six simple words, David made his choice. He made a choice to repent. He made a choice to make a U-turn. And I love God's immediate response. Look, verse the, in the middle of the verse, And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin, David. You're not going to die. God has forgiven you. Isn't it interesting here that God's forgiveness was as quick as David's confession, David's repentance? David repented, God forgave. Just like that. Isn't that interesting? I love that. You know, we just got a new computer for our house. Uh, everybody finally talked me into going out and getting one. And uh, actually, the old one wasn't all that old. But I couldn't believe how much in just a couple of years technology had changed. So we went out and got a gateway. And on this gateway, it's really cool. You sit down and you turn the computer on and there's a button right on the keyboard that you hit. And when you hit this key, you go right to the Internet. You don't have to go through AOL. There's no pass and go, no collecting $200, none of that stuff. You go right to the Internet, hit the button, boom, on you go. I thought that was pretty cool. And when I was studying this passage, I said, I thought, you know, this is exactly the way it is with repentance in God. When we hit the repentance key on the keyboard of our lives, 
you go right to the forgiveness of God. No AOL, no pass and go, no collecting $200, no nothing. Hit the repentance key right to the forgiveness and the mercy of God. David did it. Friends, this is what Peter said. Peter said, repent and you will receive forgiveness of sin. That's what Peter said. God doesn't grant forgiveness to people because we go to church. He doesn't grant forgiveness to people because we sing in the choir or put money in the offering plate. He doesn't grant forgiveness and mercy to people because we work hard at the office or try to keep the Ten Commandments or because we go the speed limit on the beltway. There'd be no forgiven human being in Washington if that were true. God grants forgiveness to people on the one basis and one basis only, and that basis is repentance. Repent and God will forgive you. Now, that's as far as I want us to go in the passage for today. But I do want us to ask a really important question. And you know what that question is. So ready? One, two, three. So what? That's right. Lon, so what? Well, I want to talk to you about how this truth relates to your life and to my life here in the 20th century. Because, friends, God's formula has not changed. Forgiveness in the 20th century was the same thing as it was in David's day. It comes on the basis of repentance. I love bumper stickers, and I've told you before, one of my favorite bumper stickers is the one that says, going the wrong way, question mark, God allows U-turns. I love that bumper sticker, because that sums it all up. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a U-turn. It's basically an about face in those areas of our lives where we're out of step with God. I was out at this conference at Focus on the Family this week, and one of the things I said in one of the meetings where I spoke was, that you know, a lot of Christians I know don't smoke or drink or cuss or chew, but they're digging their grave with a knife and a fork. Well, after the meeting was over, Brendan and I were standing outside getting ready to take a shuttle bus somewhere, and there's this man came up to us who was, well, kind of, you know, big, overweight, obese. And he said, he said, oh, he said, man, you hit me right between the eyes with that knife and fork thing you said. And he said, but you know what? He said, you, people like you just don't understand how hard it is to lose weight. You just don't, you just don't understand. This is not easy to do. I said, wait a minute. Don't tell me I don't understand. In high school, I weighed 300 pounds. Ten years ago, I weighed 220 pounds. And I went to see my doctor because I had high blood pressure developing. And he put his arm on my shoulder. Some of you have heard me say this. And he said to me, son, you don't need medicine. You need to lose 35 pounds. And I came home and told my wife, I'm going to lose 35 pounds. She laughed at me. She said, right. But you know what? I made up my mind I was going to carry out dietary repentance. You understand what I'm saying? I was going to make a U-turn in the way I ate and what my weight was. And I said to him, don't you tell me I don't understand how hard it is. Friend, I can smell cashews and put on weight. Don't tell me that. I know it's hard, but that doesn't matter. I made a U-turn in my life. And by the grace of God, ten years later, that U-turn stuck. And, and let me say, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, trusting Christ, coming to Christ, becoming a Christian is basically just a U-turn. It's an act of repentance when it comes to what you're trusting to get you into heaven. It means that instead of trusting your own human works and your own human effort to earn you into heaven or your way into heaven, you make a U-turn and decide you're going to trust what Jesus did for you on the cross plus nothing. That's all it is. Just a U-turn. But even for us as Christians, repentance as a Christian is an ongoing thing. When a Christian with an alcohol problem decides that they're going to stop drinking and go to AA and they do it, that's repentance. When a Christian 
who's a workaholic father, decides that they're going to spend less time at the office and spend more time with their children, that's repentance. Well, when a Christian who's a compulsive spender decides they're going to let their, their spouse control the money, that's repentance. When a Christian dating couple decides to stop having sex and to wait until they're married and they knock it off and they do it, that's repentance. When a Christian who's cheating on their spouse decides to call the adultery off and go back and rebuild that marriage, that's repentance. When a Christian student decides to stop partying their way through school but to buckle down and to study hard and to make the grades, that's repentance. When a Christian man decides to stop undressing women everywhere he goes with his eyes, that's repentance. Repentance is just a U-turn in some area of our life where we're out of step with God. You say, well, Lana, I understand what you're saying. I think I got the basic point, but can you put some handles on this for me? Can you, can you, can you give me some bite-sized chunks? Let's say I wanted to repent in some area of my life. How do I do it? I mean, give me some steps to go through. Well, I'd love to do that. In the little bit of time I have left, that's what I'm going to do for you. But before I do that, let me just point out one quick thing that, that the Apostle Paul said. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He said this. He said, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but the sorrow of the world brings death. It's interesting here that the Apostle Paul says there's two different kinds of sorrow in the world. One of them, godly sorrow, lies at the heart and the foundation of this thing called repentance. If you, if you don't have godly sorrow, you cannot repent properly. But Paul said when you have godly sorrow... It leads to repentance, which leads to God's mercy and no regrets. He said, and then there's the sorrow of the world, which leads to absolutely no spiritual benefit at all. So as we look at how to do this thing called repentance, what we really need to look at is, how do you do this thing called godly sorrow? What's the difference between it and the sorrow of the world? What is godly sorrow like so you and I can practice it and really repent? So that's what I want to tell you. I've got four quick things to give you. Principle number one, component number one of godly sorrow is that godly sorrow starts with a broken heart. It starts with a broken heart. I want you to turn to Psalm, into the Psalms with me, to Psalm 51. This is page 405. David wrote this Psalm right after his sin with Bathsheba and right after Nathan the prophet's visit. If you read the heading of the Psalm, you'll see that. And let me show you what he says right here in Psalm 51, page 405. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, David said, Lord, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings or I'd bring you one. Well, then what does God take, take delight in? Verse 17, the sacrifices of God that God delights in are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. See, the sorrow of the world says, hey. I'm sorry. I'm sorry because I got caught. I'm sorry because I'm having to pay the penalty. I'm sorry because I got nabbed and now somebody's making me face some unpleasant consequences. But if I could do it again and get away with it, I would because I'm not really sorry I did it. I'm just sorry I got caught. Now, that's the sorrow of the world. But godly sorrow comes from a broken heart. Godly sorrow is broken hearted over what it did. It's broken-hearted that it hurt people. It's broken-hearted that it damaged people. It's broken-hearted that it let God down. It's broken-hearted that it hurt the reputation of God. 
And when you've got broken-hearted sorrow over what you did, somebody could give you the chance to do it again and tell you for sure you could get away with it, and you wouldn't do it again. Because you're broken-hearted, you did it the first time. And you don't want to repeat it. I've had the opportunity over uh, almost 30 years of living in Washington to visit um, traffic court several times here in Washington. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to traffic court. It's a very interesting experience. You sit there and you watch what happens. Everybody comes into traffic court, has gotten a haircut, they've shaved, they got on a suit, maybe for the first time in eight or ten years, and, and they're all dressed up, and they stand there so respectfully, in most cases, in front of the judge, and they tell the judge how sorry they feel and they've learned their lessons, and, you know, they're not going to do it again. And, and, and everybody knows. It's all a big game. The judge knows it. The bailiff knows it. Everybody sitting in the audience knows it. The lawyers know it. We all know it. It's a big game. The game is, I dress up. I look good. I go into court. I stand in front of the judge because I'm facing a big penalty. I say and do all the right things, and I hope I can catch a break. That's the game. The game is called courtroom repentance. That's the game. Now, what I'm here to say to you is that godly repentance is not courtroom repentance. It doesn't mean just dressing right and cutting your hair right and saying the right thing so you can get the pressure off of you. Godly repentance means that there is a deep, gripping sense way down in the bottom of your heart that this was an awful thing that you've done. That you're ashamed of yourself. You would never do this again even if you had the chance. It's a brokenheartedness. That's where it starts. Principle number two. Godly sorrow does no blame shifting. Makes no excuses. Look right here in Psalm 51 what David says. Verse 3. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, David says. And Lord, I've done what is evil in your sight. Isn't it interesting that David does no blame shifting, makes no excuses, offers no rational uh, rationalizations, gives no alibis? There's nothing but a straightforward admission of guilt. It's not society's fault, his parents' fault, the economy's fault. It's not the peer pressure. It wasn't Satan that made him do it. It wasn't somebody else's fault. He doesn't stand there and say, well, you know, if that woman had not been out there without her clothes on, it wouldn't have happened. It's not my fault. It's her fault. What's she doing out there? No, 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 no. David says, it's my fault. I did it. I'm responsible. I accept the responsibility. I did it. Just that simple. You know, if you follow the NBA at all, you know, of course, that Dennis Rodman, the bad boy of basketball, has been back playing for the Lakers for the last couple of months. Just got fired again. But uh, the reason is when he came to play with the Lakers, he skipped practice, came to practice late. When he did come to practice, he'd been drinking, smelled like alcohol, wouldn't do anything, stood around, defied the coach, openly criticized his teammates to the press, said they were terrible, they stunk, didn't have the desire they needed to win, spoke up and, and criticized his coach in team meetings, disrespected his coach. Finally, the Lakers let him go. They said in the paper, and I quote, he had been nothing but trouble on a team with enough trouble already without him. We couldn't take it anymore. And he didn't seem to care. Well, what was interesting to me is that then the reporter went and interviewed Rodman. And asked Rodman, well, how do you explain? What's your take on getting fired? Huh. Listen to what he said. He said, and I quote, he said, they needed somebody to blame for what's happening on that team, for how bad they're playing. And I'm the guy they chose to blame. They're cowards for putting it all on me like it's all my fault. They simply made me their fall guy. Doesn't sound like the same story, does it? 
And it's interesting, he doesn't say a thing about the practices he missed, a thing about the practices he was late to, a thing about the alcohol abuse. He doesn't say a thing about his criticizing his players or criticizing his coach or being a poor teammate. You don't hear any of that, do you? All you hear is, not my fault, not my fault, not my fault. They're picking on me. I'm the fall guy. Why is it? Welcome to the sorrow of the world. That's what it's like. The sorrow of the world always has a quiver full of excuses. It always has a fancy explanation for that, a fancy explanation for this. But no matter how you slice it, it's always somebody else's fault. Not godly sorrow. Mm-mm. Godly sorrow says what David says. I sinned before the Lord. That's it. My fault. No beating around the bush, no fancy explanations, no playing catch me if you can. Friends, godly repentance is a bloody process. I need to tell you. It demands courage to be brutally honest with your mistakes and your faults and your wrongdoing. That's why people who want to spare themselves and people who want to protect and insulate themselves are not candidates yet for godly repentance. Because godly repentance takes some courage to get in there and see yourself like that. Principle number three. Godly sorrow not only begins with a broken heart and not only demands no blame shifting, but third, godly sorrow is willing to accept whatever consequences God deems appropriate. Whatever God says is appropriate, godly sorrow says, okay, I'll accept that and I'll accept it without complaint. You, 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 you can't turn back there now, we don't have enough time, but if you turn back and read the story in Second Samuel 12, you'll find that the most immediate consequence God put on David for what he had done is he said, David... The child that Bathsheba's born to you is going to die. And the story goes on to say that as soon as Nathan left, the child took deathly ill. This cute little toddler running around took deathly ill. And David went in his room and he prayed and he fasted. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't drink. His advisors were worried he was going to die. He wouldn't come out of the room. Finally, the child died. And then they said, oh my goodness, now what's going to happen? You know what happened then? David got up, took a bath, changed his clothes, came out and said, I'm hungry. Y'all bring me something to eat. And they, they couldn't understand it. They were like, they came to him and they said, hey, when the child was, was still alive, you were a wreck. Then now the child dies, you go take a bath, clean up, want to eat. We don't get it. And what David basically said to them is, well, while the child was still alive, I was, I was a wreck because I was pleading with God, thinking maybe God would show mercy. But now that the child's died and it's obvious God's not going to show mercy in that regard, you know what? It's my fault. I deserve it. Nobody to blame but myself. Everything God has done is right. Now, there's no sense whining about it. I'm hungry. Bring me something to eat. Let's get on with life. And friends, why didn't David scream and curse and throw sandals out the window or something like that? I'll tell you why. Because he realized that this consequence God gave him was deserved. He deserved it. In fact, he deserved a lot worse. And if anything, he was grateful to God that the consequences weren't worse than they were. I used to work as a volunteer in Montgomery County Jail. I used to go there when I first came to Washington area every Sunday after church. And on Thursday nights to help with chapel services, I led a Bible study there for the inmates. And I did this for two or three years. Uh, and, and you know what I learned? I learned the most interesting thing about jail. You won't believe this, but this something may shock you. But you know what? Jail is full of innocent people. Did you know that? Did you know that in jail we have got people who don't belong there? That is a huge mistake that society is racist and society is socioeconomically biased and, and, and that the only reason they're there is they were poor or they were born the wrong color or, or you know, or society's out to get them. Or so, One guy told me that he was there because society needed to fill the jail so they could spend the budget. 
So they put him in there. These people believe this stuff. They do. And, I, you know, I couldn't believe it. So it, it occurred to me, where is the person in jail who will actually stand up and go, I'm here because I'm guilty. I'm here because I deserve this. I'm here because I did something wrong, and I'm just lucky they didn't do something worse to me. You don't meet many of them in there. You know why? Because the sorrow of the world always feels like whatever consequence it gets, it's too harsh. Whatever consequence you give it, it's unfair. Not godly sorrow. Mm -mm. Godly sorrow, when we're gripped by godly sorrow for what we've done, we take our medicine and we take it without complaint. And frankly, we thank God that our medicine isn't worse because we deserve worse. That's godly sorrow. That's what David had. Fourth and finally, godly sorrow always results in genuine change in a person's life. Always. I had a gal in my office not too long ago, and she was telling me about a confrontation she had with a, a, another a person. And she said, I went and I told this person what they were doing was hurtful. It was damaging me. It was damaging other people. It was inconsiderate. And, and, and I explained the whole thing. And they said, this other person apologized. They felt so terrible. They asked me to forgive them. They seemed so repentant. And she said, so I forgave them. She said, I said, well, so why are you here to see me? She said, because now I'm mad. She said, I'm mad now. Because that was a couple months ago. And you know what? After all of those fancy words of repentance and how bad they felt and everything like that, they're doing the same thing. They haven't changed one bit. Not a single thing is different. And now I'm saying that repentance wasn't genuine. If it was genuine, something would have changed. She's right. She's absolutely right. That's why John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 18, uh, 3 rather, verse yeah, 18, he said, produce fruit that's in keeping with repentance. In other words, what he was saying is that godly sorrow always produces outward evidence. This is how you distinguish it from the sorrow of the world. The sorrow of the world gives out all kinds of wonderful rhetoric about how bad it feels and how sorry it is. But after all the talk's done, nothing changes. That's the sorrow of the world. Nothing changes. But when you're gripped with godly sorrow, if there's real repentance happening in your life, my friend, other people can't help but see it. They see it because you're willing to go back and make amends to the people you've hurt. If there's a way you can go fix it, you're going to go do that. You remember Zacchaeus, the wee little guy that climbed up the tree? Remember what he said to Jesus? He said, Jesus, I'm going back and every person I've ever stolen from, I'm paying them back four times what I stole. Remember that? And Jesus said, today, real repentance, real salvation came to this house. Why? Because you can see it. That's what, that's what, that's what uh, John the Baptist said. If real repentance has come to our life, people can see us fixing the things that are wrong in our behavior, working on it, deliberately pursuing obedience to God in our actions. See, true repentance involves a lot more than just words. It involves action. And this is how God and other people can tell whether or not we mean business. No matter how you slice it, a person cannot repent unless there is a deliberate decision to turn away from sin, to break away from sin, and to pursue righteous behavior in our life, unless there is this kind of a decision to alter our behavior, repentance never reaches critical mass. We've got a lot of people who do the first three things pretty good, but repentance never gets to critical mass in their life because they really aren't willing to pay the price to change. So let's summarize. What are the principles, the components of godly sorrow? Number one, it starts with a broken heart. Number two, 
There's no blame shifting, no excuses. Number three, that person's willing to accept whatever consequences come that God deems appropriate. And number four, it results in a clean break in sinful behavior, making amends where possible, pursuing righteous behavior. It results in change. Now, folks, there are some of us here today as Christians who need to repent. I don't know your names, but I know in an audience like this, there are some of us here today who desperately need to repent. There are some of us here today who feel just like David did in Psalm 32. We feel miserable on the inside. There's no joy left in our walk with God anymore. It's all gone. We're dried up like an old prune on the inside. Because there are things happening in our life that we know we're out of step with God. And very frankly, we've been letting it go on and on and on. And it's taken a toll. I'm here to invite you today to repent. To make a U-turn. There are people here today with drug and alcohol problems that are destroying their families and destroying their children. Destroying the people they love all around them. And I'm asking you, are you broken hearted enough yet about the damage you're causing that you're willing to step up and make a U-turn. There are people here today who are destroying marriage their marriage with selfishness and neglect and sexual unfaithfulness. And the damage is everywhere. I'm here to ask you, are you broken hearted enough about the damage you're causing that you're willing to change? There are people here today who are slaves to pornography. Secretly. And it's destroying your inner life. You feel so awful and so guilty you don't know what to do with yourself. But are you broken hearted enough you're willing to change? There are people here today, Christians, dating couples, who are going way too far physically, undermining the very foundation of your relationship. I'm asking you, are you broken hearted enough about it? You're willing to change. And there are people here who are digging their graves with knives and forks. There are people here who are giving their employer half a day's work for a full day's pay every day. There are people here who are students that are winging it, not even coming close to maximizing yourself. People here who are overworking and neglecting their children to try to get that key to the executive washroom. And I'm asking you, are you tired enough of the damage you're causing? You're broken hearted enough about it that you're willing to change. David was. It took him a year, but finally he said, I can't go on like this anymore. I can't do this. Any day to you turn. And the wonderful thing is God was right there to receive him with open arms, to pick up the pieces, and on they went together. God helped him, as God will help you. And so, my friends, God is standing there with open arms ready for you today, saying, are you ready yet? Ready yet? Do you need to do more damage, or are you ready yet? What I'd like to challenge you to do today is, if you're ready, you need to tell God, God, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's get it on. I have to pay the price, I'll pay the price. I have to go make amends, I'll make amends. I need to start going to AA, I'll do it. If it causes me some embarrassment, I don't care. I can't go on like this anymore. And if that's you, then let's start today to make that U-turn. What do you say? Let's pray together. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to give you just a moment. And if you need to tell God about your willingness to make a U-turn, Why don't you do that right now and ask for his help? I thank you for the wonderful promise that Peter gave us. Repent and you will receive forgiveness of sins. 
And so, Lord, my prayer today is that for those of us who are willing to say, okay, God, it's you turn time. And I mean business, God. Thank you for reassuring every one of us who are willing to do that. That you stand with open arms like the prodigal son's dad. Waiting to take us in your arms and love us and forgive us and kiss us and hug us. And say, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you made that turn. Now let's rebuild your broken world. Lord, thank you that you're that kind of God. And that when we feel desperate and like we've got no place to go, we've always got you. And so for people today who made that decision, give them hope. Give them hope that they're not in this alone and that change is possible if Jesus Christ is the one who's driving that change. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for reminding us today, even as Christians, that the way we keep our relationship with you vibrant and clean is by repenting. Help us to be people of repentance, Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.